Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Well, welcome uh, to our time today at our Sunday morning gathering, Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. I am glad that you're with us today because we are all in for a special treat. Last week we did church and state. This week we're doing it again, but we're doing women and justice this week and how fitting it is to have women talk about that. So we have Dr. Tiffany Gill. She's a professor, uh, well uh, within her acumen in doing this. She is a leader at the church as well. Um, we have also Sherelle uh, Dandy. Who is uh, who is assistant DA here in Philadelphia, and has done great work in our city, and also helped Epiphany Fellowship to be connected with our um, uh, our judicial system and our police department in so many ways. So she's been a blessing as well. We also have with us Dr. Sarita Lyons. Uh, she is a, a psychologist as well as a leader at our church, and she's a lawyer. So she has the gambit of things there. Been a blessing to our church. Uh, and excited for her uh, to dive in. And then we have a new ad that I'm so excited for. I've been trying to figure out how to how to add her in the mix of using her expertise and her commitment to scripture in our time together. So guess who we have with us today? Dr. Ruth Burke, Dr. Ruth Burke. I'm so excited that she she has a Ph.D. from in sociology from uh, the University of uh, Pennsylvania. So all of these ladies serve at Epiphany Fellowship in varying capacities, and I'm excited for them to take number one, the Bible, and flesh it out. Number two, speak from the perspective of a woman. Number three, uh, engage engage what they believe how culture needs to be engaged from their perspective. So I'm excited to take notes. I'm going to have my notepad out. I'm ready. I don't know if you got breakfast, you got brunch, or you usually got popcorn, you got tea, whatever you got. Let's get it together. Let's get in here and listen to our sisters uh, wax eloquent to the glory of God as we learn a ton from what they have to say as it relates to women and justice. God bless you. Let's dig in. Hello and welcome to today's panel discussion. My name is Daniela Coletta, and I am a member here at Epiphany Fellowship. I'm a part of the fabric of this church where we exist to glorify Jesus Christ in every area of life. We are delighted to be with you today, and we welcome you into our conversation on women and justice. I am joined by four beautiful, wonderful, phenomenal women of God. And without any further ado, I would like to introduce you to each of them, beginning with Dr. Tiffany Gill. Dr. Tiffany Gill is an award-winning professor, writer, and historian, the author of two books on the history of Black women. She earned her PhD in African-American history at Rutgers University, and currently she serves as a deacon and our SALT Women's Ministry Discipleship Team Leader. Next, we have Dr. Ruth Burke. Dr. Ruth received her bachelor's degree in sociology from Princeton University and her PhD in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. She is married to Pastor Nyron Burke, our stewardship pastor here at Epiphany. She is currently homeschooling their three older girls and also serves on the board of her and her husband's technology startup. Next, we have Sherelle Dandy. Sherelle Dandy Esquire is a prosecutor and assistant supervisor of the Homicide and Non-Fatal Shooting Unit at the District Attorney's Office here in Philly. She is a longtime member of Epiphany Fellowship and co-leads our Woke Church in Action Ministry. And last but certainly not least, we are joined by Dr. Sarita Lyons. Dr. Sarita is a wife, 
mother, speaker, women's Bible teacher, and psychotherapist. She is on staff at Epiphany Fellowship as the Director of Community Life and Women's Ministry. Prior to full-time ministry, Dr. Sarita was in private practice, where she provided counseling for individuals, families, couples, and groups for a variety of psychological needs. She often speaks, writes, and advocates about the intersections of faith, mental health, and justice, as well as women's issues in and outside of the church. Welcome, ladies. We're so excited to have you. We're going to go ahead and dive right in and begin our discussion on women, the insurrection, and the American church. A few weeks ago, there was an insurrection at the Capitol building that shocked the nation. Video was eventually released that showed insurrectionists on the Senate floor praying to Jesus. I'd like each panelist to respond, beginning with Dr. Ruth, to how you felt as a believer watching the insurrection unfold, and particularly watching the prayer, Christian flags, and other Christian symbolism on center stage. Thanks, Daniela. Um, I think my two primary emotions were grief and disgust. Um, grief over what was happening to our nation. Um, seeing the Capitol desecrated that way. Um, watching uh, just the way that people were associating Christianity with their um, the actions that were clearly against the law of our land. Um, it was deeply, deeply grieving, um, but also it was disgusting um, because what they were doing is not in line with scripture at all and goes completely against what we're instructed to do in God's word. Um, I mean, thinking about Romans chapter 13, all the scriptures that tell us to obey our governing authorities um, pay taxes to whom taxes are due to respect those that are in positions because of authority, because God has put them there. And here they are completely disrespecting the structures of authority in our nation. Um, and it felt like they were dragging the name of Christ through the mud. Um, and as a believer that hurts our wit, my witness, it hurts our witness it makes it even harder to tell someone about Christ when that's what they see on TV. Absolutely. Was, oh, sorry, go ahead, Cheryl. Sorry, yeah, I was also heartbroken watching. Um, it was devastating to watch, um, as Dr. Ruth said, what was happening to the country. Um, it, it felt as if um, our country was just completely divided. And we know that the country has been divided in a lot of ways over the last maybe four plus years, uh, really throughout its history, if you wanna get technical. Um, so the division is something that especially us um, African-Americans are aware of, um, but to see the division and have people be on the news proclaiming to be followers of Christ made it more devastating to watch. Um, as believers, we should be doing everything that we do in love with love. Christ himself is love. Um, so to see that this violence was happening, I mean, we have to call it what it was. There was murder. Um, there was five people that were killed. There was assaulting. There were officers who were beaten. There are officers who are still struggling with some lasting effects that they're going to be dealing with. Um, probably for the rest of their lives. I think one officer may lose an eye. Um, so this was a violent situation. Um, it wasn't just a protest. 
So to have people being violent in the name of Christ is devastating. Um, so I, I pray that we as believers can rally together in a way that we restore the witness um, of, of as believers so that people in the news and people that, are, that have had the opportunity to see that can see what true Christianity looks like. Yes, like, like my sister said, I too was grieved and disgusted and outraged. Um, but if, if I'm honest, I wasn't shocked. Um, in fact, sort of white mob violence has often been the response to um, African-Americans asserting political power. Um, as a historian in terms of a long view, um, one of the things I thought when I saw the pictures of people screaming and yelling with such anger and rage with the flag using it as a weapon and flagpoles and, and just the complete disrespect is that you could almost superimpose images, whether they'd be from um, Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, when white mobs stood outside um, and spat and threw things at little black children trying to go to school in an integrated environment, or the images and the documents that we have from um, the, the red summer of 1919 as African-Americans were moving uh, and migrating as part of the great migration as a way to better their lives and to gain access to the vote. And we see mob violence going into those communities and torching, torching them and burning them. Um, we see that after the end of reconstruction or after the end of slavery, when the thought of African-Americans voting and trying to exercise their rights gives rise to terror organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan saw itself as a Christian group. Many of its symbols were the cross, right? So, so as shocking as it was in this moment, um, we have to reckon with it being part of, unfortunately, a long and ugly history. And so I'm always taken aback whenever on the news or other places when they're like, that's not who we are. And I actually say, actually, unfortunately, that is what America has been. And it's until we reckon with that, that this was not an aberration, but part of a longer history um, of you know, putting Christianity and white mob violence together um, until we reckon with it in that reality, we're never gonna really be able to overcome it. Yeah, so I definitely co-sign and have felt all the things that the other ladies have already shared. Um, I think just to add something different, um, because I agree with what was already shared, I also felt um, very angry and frustrated, not because I want any violence of any kind perpetuated on anyone, but I couldn't help as a Black woman to think about if all of those people out there at the Capitol had been Black, if there had been a Black Lives Matter protest, that they would have had snipers picking off people left and right. And so it just infuriated me that that kind of thing could happen because, because white people get a pass, there's deferential treatment, um, there's an expectation that they're good and can be trusted. Whereas if there was even an announcement, I mean, they had threats already, they knew, they were on alert that something could pop off at this uh, rally and there was no National Guard, but if you were to have announced 
that there was going to be a black protest or a Black Lives Matter event, then, you know, you have full squat national SWAT team, National Guard. Um, so that was frustrating and disappointing. And I think many black people kind of felt that. I, I mean, the first thought that came to my mind is if they were black, they would have dropped the bomb on them like they dropped the bomb on move. And so just to know that that was a glaring picture of uh, the, the difference, the difference in this country um, was pretty frustrating. And then just all the Christian symbols. I mean, we might talk more about that later, but just the idea that people have tried to God stamp, you know, violence, God stamp insurrection, do harm and do danger in the name of God. Um, and it was also confusing to me how kind of white America, I was listening to various news networks, that people who were like outraged, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. You know, we're used to crosses being burned on the lawn, you know, all those sorts of things. So the fact that white America didn't think that that kind of behavior and mentality was problematic until a segment of white America turned on itself. So black people been getting choked and stomped and shot and we are supposed to think about progress, but there's not a problem until, you know, a symbol of American justice, you know, a symbol of American democracy is attacked by its own. Wow, wow. Dr. Sarita, pulling on that thread and staying there, how is what happened on January 6th a justice issue? And what are some of the justice issues that the Capitol riots put on center stage? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we've been studying Esther um, in the women's ministry. And one of the things that I talked about even during that le last lesson um, in, in view of the insurrection was it put on the injustice of hypocrisy, the injustice of double standards. Um, so I kind of stated one, the difference in terms of how kind of black protest is viewed against white protest but also the hypocrisy of what we claim to value as honored symbols. And so I think some of the ladies mentioned it, the idea that you could, you know, blackball Colin Kaepernick for daring to kneel uh, during the national anthem or not wanting to salute the flag, but then the same types of people, obviously maybe not the same people, were taking that same symbol, that flag that they demand black people honor and they were beating a police officer with the flag or they were breaking windows with the flag. And then I got to thinking, wow, there's another injustice because anytime there's a, a sentiment of Black Lives Matter, then you have to hear Blue Lives Matter. And of course we know that Blue Lives Matter, they should and they do, but Blue Lives Matter didn't matter that day because Blue Lives were protecting white people from destroying by and large the nation, you know, the, the capital. Um, but you could take the symbol that you want Colin Kaepernick to kneel to and beat the blue police officer with the flag. So blue lives only matter if they have absolute disregard for black lives. So as long as a blue life has its knee on the neck of George Floyd, blue lives matter. But if a blue life is protecting an insurrectionist from tearing up the capital, then their life doesn't matter. So, I mean, I just think that there's tons of hypocrisy um, the idea that we still are trying to make um, the, 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 the American nation a Christian nation where we could have emblems like a, a noose and a cross at the same protest. 
um, where we could have people, um, you know, praying and singing Christian songs while also uh, demeaning people. There was someone actually even reenacted the George Floyd. I saw a clip of someone reenacting George Floyd on the Capitol steps. So yeah, I think we need to call out hypocrisy as an issue of justice, double standards. And I mean, we see that all throughout our country, not just with racism, but with women and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I, I think one other issue that we uh, have to recognize as a country is the clear white privilege. Um, and the whole reason that this protest or insurrection even happened, it's not like in the springtime when George Floyd was murdered before all of our eyes and we all unfortunately witnessed a man die unnecessarily. This was because they didn't like the fact that the person that they wanted to be in office lost. And they then wanted to then say that the, uh, that the election was stolen. And that was the reason for this. This wasn't about someone who died unjustifiably. This wasn't about people that weren't getting um, their rights met. Um, this was literally about the fact that as a person who uh, wants to have my ideas and my ideals of what things should look like in this country be met, meaning I want this particular president and I want these particular things to be considered the priority of this country. And because that's not happening, I then get to go not only destroy the Capitol, attempt to kidnap people that are working in the Capitol, and then also in the process, kill people. Like that is a disgrace, but it's also something that we've been wrestling with as a country and as African-Americans for a very long time. This, this white privilege, we just had an opportunity to see it so clearly on display um, that we see now on the news, people that are actually in the process of, of, of committing multiple felonies and, and, and murder just because they didn't like the outcome of an election. Um, that, that in and of itself is a, is a very scary um, reality that we have to look at from this past, uh, this past situation. Um, one of the things I, I would just add as well, another justice issue that may not have been, I think, quite as obvious, but certainly undergirded a lot of the behavior that led to the insurrection and even the behavior at the insurrection is that this also is about not just the rampant racism and white supremacy and all the things that my sisters you know, so eloquently explained, but there is a gendered component to it in terms of the way that um, the former president embodied a particular style of leadership that was based on a very toxic view of masculinity, right? That was about speaking about women and, and, in sexualized ways and dismissing women. I mean, so much of the vitriol that came out of that White House was geared toward women, particularly women of color. There was the certain iron black women in particular that came out. And this idea that, you know, why part of why he was seen as so popular as a president is that he was a president who would tell you like it is and would, you know, get in your face and, and just very toxic ideas about leadership that are not in line at all with how Christ shows servant leadership and the way that Christ embodies strength. Um, and so this idea of this kind of toxic um, view of leadership that is viewed in this very toxic way 
in which men's behavior is about violence and um, about degrading women undergirds a lot of the kinds of things that we saw um, in the insurrection. And so I think it's important to, to think about um, both crises happening. Um, again, that's not to say, I mean, the majority of people who were out there were men, and that's not to say there weren't women involved and that women have not, um, particularly white women have not played a really important role in the rise of Trumpism and the insurrection. But certainly these ideas around masculinity um, that are not biblical, that do not exhibit the kind of love and strength and servanthood that Christ embodies as a leader um, are also part of the toxic mix that I think went into what the violence and the degradation that we saw at the Capitol. And if I could just add one more thing. Um, one of the things that struck me about what happened at the Capitol as well is that it highlighted a lot of the disparities within the justice system itself. Um, so we know from our history that our justice system, some people like some people have referred to it as an injustice system, but it's definitely far from perfect. And what we saw at the during the insurrection at the Capitol was actually some police officers participating in what happened there, which just highlights racism and bias within the police force, but also, you know, taking a broader look at our nation, the racism and bias that's prevalent within the justice system as a whole. All oh, such good remarks, um, heavy, heavy stuff. Um, I, I do have one more question uh, related to the insurrection and what took place at the Capitol. And I think there's a good segue afterwards, but um, really just opening up to the group for whoever would like to weigh in. Do you think the images of the riots at the Capitol impacted the black community differently than the white community? And if so, how? And also I would love to hear the take on specifically towards or the differences between how it may have impacted black women differently than white women. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, uh, we, we've touched on a little bit, but, you know, I, I think the first response after just sort of, you know, the outrage is just like what, what Dr. Sarita said, where it's just like, if the, if the people that were involved in this um, were of a different race, we know the consequences would be different. Like it's it's not even um, imagining, right? We we we've seen what has happened to even peaceful protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters. Even in our own city in Philadelphia, there's a big investigation going on about that right now. And so, you know, I, I think it just became a, an issue about value, right, and worth. And the fact, not even just that they weren't sort of detained on site, but that many of these folks are posting blatantly on Facebook and, and bragging about this in ways that as African-Americans and as African-American women, um, we're always so conscious of how we come across, right? Of, of the spaces we inhabit and how we inhabit. And, you know, the, the way that, you know, when we see police in our rear view mirrors and how you, you know, comport yourself, all the, um, the unwritten rules, right? That we all learn and teach to children and are socialized in, which is about, you know, you have to be, 
on your best behavior at all times. And even then it may not work out for you that these folks were just so completely, as the Bible would say, lawless and were bragging about it and posting it on Facebook. Um, to me, just show the complete discrepancy of, of how we even move in the world. I mean, it, it couldn't be any more opposite. I hope that my white sisters in Christ were as saddened as I was about what happened. But I do think, and I, I know I'm sort of venturing a little bit into your territory, Dr. Sarita, but um, personally, I think particularly the images of the noose, for example, there's a layer of trauma there um, for me as a black woman um, that my white sisters might not feel. Um, so I'm actually multiracial. I'm, my mom is Jewish and my dad is black. And when we have lots of images of um, black men in particular being hung in the South, um, and when I saw that news, it sort of flashed my mind back to those images, um, which were very difficult um, to process um, when I first saw them as a teenager. Um, and so I think there is like an extra layer of trauma, similar to how when I see images of the Holocaust, it's very traumatic because some members of my family were killed in the Holocaust. So. I, I definitely agree. Um, even just speaking as a black woman who's also a mother um, to kind of tell, you know, to, um, to uh, dovetail off of what Dr. Tiffany was saying and Dr. Uh, Ruth, um, as a mother, you're like constantly talking to, I'm constantly talking to my black son about how to navigate the world, how to be embodied as a black male, to see himself as an image bearer of God, but also manage the fact that everyone else doesn't see that in him. And to just see, you know, the, the carefulness he's driving now, like how you drive, how you engage police. If we're going to even protest, even we had these discussions when we, protested with Epiphany Fellowship over the summer. If someone says something to you, what you don't say, what you do say, and to just see, to use the word Sherelle used, uh, Sherelle, the, the idea that like people were just like a law unto themselves. You know, it's like, like it says, like in the day of judges, people just did what was right in their own eyes and there was no consequences. I mean, literally you had people scaling the wall like Spider-Man. And I mean, that image was just, I mean, like on, on one part, it was co comedy because of the complete nabalness of it. Like that just looked foolish, right? So there was a part of it that said, these people are bug wild, this is crazy. But the fact that they had the ability to do it, that they didn't even consider their safety, they, that, that even when a certain group of people are being completely lawless, there's a lack of consciousness and, and conservatism about whether or not I could lose my life. But my son drives around and said a, a cop car passes him and he's like worried and it's not even about him. So I do, I think that those things just reiterated the issue of we don't matter as much in this country. Um, and, and I also felt like, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I also felt grieved like Barack Obama, wh whether you agree with his politics or not, couldn't have gotten away with a quarter a, a, a fifth, one percent of what has happened over the last four years, um, to think that he was just wrung out for the Jeremiah Wright speech about you know chickens coming home to roost, and what we saw at the Capitol that day was America's chickens coming home to roost 
on their own farm. And so I just, um, yeah, it's it's sad, but there was a part of us, I think, just even as 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 African Americans and maybe even women, that you know just was not shocked at all, but really frustrated at the depravity that is um, permitted, the, the the depravity that is permitted when we've seen people lose their lives for less for a fake twenty dollar bill. People have lost their life because they were trying to sell cigarettes on the street, you know, the fact that black lives can be gunned down and snuffed out with no regard, then people could have that kind of attack on America, be homegrown terrorists, um, but yet we had a Muslim ban. And one of the things that I was surprised in the days after the insurrection, because on the, on the while it was happening in that evening, a lot of the images that I was that I saw was the images of like them scaling the wall and things of that nature, things that was sort of happening outside and then them breaking the, the windows. But then once the videos started to surface of the things that were posted and the videos of them actually getting on the floor of the Senate um, and how they were able to so easily do that. And someone is sitting at the Speaker of the House's desk and stealing her mail and then goes out and brags about it. it, it was shocking even more so the more information came out that they were able to do all of that. Um, it was one thing being outside, but to then get inside and do all of the destruction that they did inside with a calmness um, and a pride that they, that they exhibited while doing it. Um, there was uh, the woman who was, who was shot, who was trying to go into the space where she would have gone into the, um, where the senators were being protected. She was shot and at that, and one of the people that was there who was a witness came out and was interviewed by someone on the news saying, you know, I was just in there, this is where I live. I'm from some, some uh, small town in Jersey, all of his information. And, you know, specifically as a prosecutor, I'm just like, oh, okay. So you just commit a crime, then you confess to the crime. And then you tell me where to go find you. That suggests that you have absolutely no fear of breaking the law. And in fact, you didn't even believe that you were breaking the law because in your mind, this is my country. I have the privilege to do whatever I want to do in this country. There's no such thing as me breaking the law in America because this is mine. Um, that was so uh, disheartening, um, but at the same time, not really surprising. Yeah. I think there's a sense, you're touching on like this sense of ownership that white citizens may feel about America that I don't think African-Americans feel the same way. Um, and th that probably has a lot to do with how we were brought here um, against our will. Um, but, but when you were talking about what happened at the Capitol, I just kept thinking about the Boston Tea Party. This isn't anything new. That was a symbol of authority. That was the King's Tea. And they just trashed it. And they, our nation has been proud of that event since it happened. Like it's in the history books. They threw the tea into the harbor. This was the beginning, you know. Um, so I think these things are as old as our nation in some ways. It's considered patriotic. And in fact, while they were out there shouting, they were calling themselves patriots. Exactly. You know, claiming rights is only dangerous when it's, you know, black and brown folks that do it, right? But that if you are a white American, there's a certain, as you were saying, like this claim, this entitlement, where it becomes revolutionary and patriotic um, to fight 
um, for for what you believe is right for you. And and you're right. I mean, this is kind of, I think, a dilemma that, you know, African-Americans have faced. You know, W.D. Boyce talked about as the double consciousness, you know, this idea of, you know, of, of being American, but not of knowing that our ancestors have fought in every war that has ever been fought, fought by America, have died, have, you know, always talk about, you know, during Jim Crow and when we couldn't even vote, we still were paying taxes and, you know, just, just contributing to this country in ways, you know, always being the ones who kind of force the United States to live up to the ideals that it says that it is. I mean, which is so, I think, just interesting to me because um, as much as as African-Americans and as people of color, we have seen that America is not what it claims to be in its founding documents. It's It's been us, our ancestors, who have been fighting to get the United States to align with that. And, you know, there's almost this unrelenting fight to keep doing that, um, but still not feeling a complete claim and stake in the country. It's, it's, it's a powerful dilemma that I think we embody, as, as Du Bois says, those warring souls that we embody um, by being once, you know, black and being an, an American as well. Yeah, and I don't know if, um, Danielle, I know there one of the questions you wanted to talk about, I think it would be a good segue just if we talked about um, how uh, white protest and white resistance is um, thought of very differently in this country than black protest and black resistance. And it has like roots that go way, way back. So, you know, when Dr. Ruth brought up the issue of the Boston Tea Party, you can look at um, Shays Rebellion, you know, you can look at all the things that were going on with uh, John Adams. Um, the, the, if I could frame it in a particular way, it is that when whites protest, um, it is considered patriotic. But when blacks resist, it is considered um, pathological. And so uh, black resistance is disordered. In fact, if you go back to slavery, there were like even um, uh, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who's like one of the founding fathers of psychiatry, you know, uh, a very known, uh, well-known uh, individual in the medical field. You go to medical school, you learn about him. Um, he even uh, pathologized black resistance. So he creates this whole made up mental disorder called draptomania, right? Which he defines, I think it's like 1851. He defines it as a, a mental disorder of the slave um, that makes them want to flee. And so, the, the idea that, a, that an enslaved person would want to have life and liberty, right? And the, the pursuit of happiness, that they would wanna get themselves and their families off of a, um, a, a, a plantation and run, that that was pathologized. So resistance for black people have always been associated with some kind of mental health issue. White people, patriots, black people, pathology. If you run it up to the 1960s, when we start seeing things around um, the, the, the civil rights movement, when you start looking at um, the Black Panther Party, um, Black pathology around resistance, there's a narrative there for that. So in like the 1950s, um, in early 1930s to 1950s, even something as common as what we all know, schizophrenia, was considered like a docile white woman stay at home disease which was crazy and sexist in of itself, right? But if you had literally, which was a brain disorder, schizophrenia, that was considered like the little stay-at-home white women's issue. But in the 1960s, when black people were protesting and resisting, 
through the Black Panther Party and through the civil rights movement, they started to then pathologize black males particularly, but also black women as having a mental health disorder. And more and more black people were then diagnosed with schizophrenia during the civil rights protests, so much so that they used as an advertisement for Haldol, which is an antipsychotic drug for psychosis when people really have uh, schizophrenia or some kind of psychosis, they would use an image of an angry black man with his fist up, looking like he was connected to the Panther Party or some resistance party. And literally the, the images for that, let me, I just wanted to re like read it. The images for that were around um, subversive and resistance. Like, are you feeling subversive? Take Haldol. And so we see over and over throughout history, when whites protest, they're patriots. When black pro blacks protest, they're, they are pathologized, that, that you have some mental defect to want to be free. You have some mental defect to want to resist oppression. And it just fed into this whole thing where black people are considered you know, animalistic and savages and angry um, as if we don't have a right to be. Um, but there's that duality. Again, there's that um, hypocrisy that we see. So even black people don't have the right to be angry. And if you are angry and want to speak truth to power or resist, you're crazy. Yeah, there's never been any acceptable form of protest for African-Americans. I can say that's historic. I mean, it, it sounds absurd, but you know, just the point we were making earlier about you know when Collar Kaepernick took a knee right, that wasn't seen as appropriate. When African-Americans protest in the streets, that's not considered appropriate. What, you know, like, and so they always make these things and like there's literally a question where you're like, well, what, what is seen as an appropriate way? There has always been resistance against blacks standing up for themselves. You know, we sort of look at Martin Luther King now, you know, the holiday we just celebrated and, you know, King has been made into a Santa Claus-like figure as if he was beloved at the time. Like I have to remind people, he was killed, right? You know, we we sort of had this thing like, oh, you know, because there's always this thing, well, if black folks today would just protest like they did in Martin Luther King's day, when I have to say, but they jailed King and his protesters over and over again. He was killed for doing what he did. Um, and even the fight to get his holiday was something that had resistance. We forget all that history. And so, you know, it becomes a way to try to, keep African-American resistance in line saying, oh, if only you were more like this or that without recognizing that those very people like King and the nonviolent movement were seen as radical and revolutionary. And there were many attempts by the US government and others to keep it down. And so um, there's, there's no appropriate way that has ever been seen. It's pathologized and there's no way that blacks can ever show resistance. And the, the thing that, the, the question that's begged after hearing um, Dr. Sarita and Dr. Tiffany so eloquently explain these issues that um, arise when we, when we protest, the question is why? And the answer is because we don't belong. Um, there is and has always been, I mean, obviously how we came to the shores of this country uh, was against our will. And since, the, since that, the entire history of this country has made us as African-Americans feel as if we don't belong. And that has consistently been played out throughout our history, unfortunately, even just a month ago with the insurrection, because that shows you the different dynamic between whites and blacks and why we don't belong in this country. And what's so unfortunate about that 
is when you, when we then speak up against that, or at least try to bring light to the plight that we have and that we feel as African-Americans and that feeling of not belonging, it is often, we're often, the response is often, well, you guys just need to get over that. Slavery happened a long time ago. You need to get over it. It's unfortunate because when you think about um, the riots and the things that happened after the George Floyd protests, which I'm never going to say or justify the riots that happened, but there is an explanation behind why people are so tired of being criminalized, um, of being made to feel as if we don't belong, of having our um, circumstances and our and the issues that have really existed and continued since slavery, whether it be the systems that have failed us from education to lack of opportunities, all of those things, and have that bottled up inside of you, um, and then watch someone who looks like you die on TV, and then hear news reporters and people that are talking as if this is just something that we just have to accept, or it's because he was resisting, which at least George Floyd never had any resistance, or it's because he was doing something illegal, all of those phrases that we have continuously had to endure, eventually there's going to be an awakening of I am tired and I need to rise up against it. And it's not justifying it, but it explains and it should show the level of um, frustration or just the level of despair that African-Americans are living with on a daily basis as a community that has never been addressed by this country. In everyone's responses, there's been this, uh, this theme and, and constant mentions of history, hypocrisy, honor. As Dr. Serena mentioned earlier uh, in, in this session, uh, our SALT Women's Ministry, we've been studying and walking through verse by verse the, the book of Esther, and we're noticing issues related to women and justice in the scriptures. Dr. Serena, can you kick us off here and, and help to expand on how the issues in the Persian Empire relate to what we're currently seeing in the American empire today? Yeah, well, I, th I think um, um, some of the themes that we're just seeing, if you look at King Azuarius, King Xerxes and Haman are two central figures. You're talking about leaders who are self-centered, egomaniacs, self-indulgent, um, very callous and cold <laughs> and um, only really care about themselves. They're money hungry, they're liquor hungry. <laughs> and there's this theme that runs throughout the book of Esther. Um, we talked about it last week, this idea of whatever fills you, fuels you, right? And you are what fills you. And so people are filled with pride, people are filled with greed, people are filled with rage. Um, and the danger of putting power in the wrong hands um, because we're all, mere men and women, we're all sinners, right? But, um, and then how that impacts people. So obviously Esther as the heroine of the story in the sense of her name is on the book, um, is someone who's a kid, a teenager, who's then dragged off to a harem um, and she's sexually exploited. That idea um, and how we even tell that story is so wrong and belittling to women as if it were some beauty pageant, as if she was at the spa for 12 months. She was getting ready to go have sex and be one of many women who would be having sex with the king. Um, the idea of um, people feeling like, um, well, even the issue, I think to bring it up to date for us today, this idea of what it means to be an exile, 
right? You know, and people of color often feel like exiles in this land, but the way the Jews were exiles in Persia, but more than that, Christians, we're exiles. This, this theme that this is not our home, that heaven is our home, and that no matter what power or systems of government, no matter how evil they are, that the power of God, that the rulership, the lordship, the kingship of God is better and, and safer than all the other power structures. So you, you have this theme as you look at these men in power that, that God is a better king, he's a better husband, that he adopts us, right, when we're orphaned in the world um, and that he can be trusted. Because even though we've talked so much about the insurrection and it can feel very grim and hopeless, as Christians, we just have to like, like sit up straight for a second and like root our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ um, because there's no failure in him. And it's kind of funny because um, like in the book of Esther where God's name is not even mentioned, he's sovereignly, providentially working behind the scenes. We've gotta be able to see God at the Capitol. We've gotta be able to see God in America. We have to be able to see God in our judicial system, no matter how jacked up things are, he is still on the throne. He is still Lord. And that doesn't excuse us from speaking truth to power like Esther and Mordecai, like they had to do something. They're active participants in God's plan for salvation and deliverance of his people, but it is God at work. And so God is the one where we can have confidence when, when the world is a mess and a wreck, that we are not in despair, that we are not uncovered we are not unprotected and that there is deliverance. And we, we live in light of being reborn and saved, but, but, and we know that, you know, this is not our home and we're living in tents. So eschatologically, we know, we know we're covered. We know we're covered. So we're asking God for the grace to endure this evil world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is not a Democrat or Republican situation. This isn't even really about Xerxes or Haman, as we learned about him being an Agagite. We're talking about enemies of the people of God because we are connected to God. And so if we limit the argument and the discussion to Trump versus this person or white versus black or men versus women, even though that's how it manifests and we don't see the real enemy behind the enemies, we will not understand that Jehovah Nisi, right? God is our banner, is at work and fighting on our behalf. And we have the privilege of knowing we win in the end. Like as the kids say, period. <laughs> Amen. I think the church has to rise up and be salt and light. The Bible, God's word is the ultimate corrective for everything that's going on. Everything we've talked about, how, you know, African-Americans have never belonged in this country. They were brought here against their will, um, the sexism and the racism. I know we're going to get to this later, but the Bible's ultimate corrective. I mean, we were all equally created in God's image and our citizenship, our ultimate sense of belonging is with him um and then we we have a responsibility to stand up and be salt and light in this world um and uh yeah one of the Amen. things i really loved about the the book of esther and i think really it's it's throughout scripture and it's something that should give us great hope and you know and it, it's it's part of a biblical principle of 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 God being near the brokenhearted, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 for those who are oppressed, right? For his people who were being oppressed, even though as, as Dr. Sarita said in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned by name, 
he's still putting all this together, orchestrating things that are bad, terrible things that are happening that he's still orchestrating as a plan of deliverance for his people. And especially when his people are oppressed. And so, you know, it's, it's exactly why we can look at the past. We can look and, and see and call out and have a responsibility to call out the things that are not of God, but to also understand that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. The Lord hears the cry of the oppressed. The Lord is at work on behalf of his people who are oppressed. And that often it is those who are have been marginalized and oppressed by the worldly standards, but are chosen by God, who often really get to refine and, and show off the glory of God, right? We've talked about how the image and the name of Christ has been marred in many ways by this collapsing, this Christian nationalism. Well, I also think it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity in this darkness for those who have been on the side of earthly oppression to stand up and to declare to the world who Christ really is. I, I think about the enslaved folks and how you know, their masters claimed to know the Bible and know God better than they did. And they had a theology that was so deep and so rich that allowed them to know that people who were literally beating them um, and saying it in the name of Christ, but they knew another God. They knew who the God of the Bible was and were able to display that. And so I think this is just a really unique opportunity for those who have been oppressed for any reason to really show people who God is and, and how he feels about justice and the oppressed. And, and what encourages me um, and, and to, to echo what um, Dr. Tiffany was saying um, about how the Lord is so close to the heart of the oppressed and even in looking at Christ's life and how he lived his life, you know, in his ministry, he went and touched the lepers and, you know, spoke to the, the woman, the Samaritan, um, like he went and spoke to and was around the people that were isolated in the culture. So I appreciate that we have that example just in how Christ lived. He also was not silent, you know, he stood up and spoke, um, he whether or not it was throwing tables or whatever he needed to do to speak against injustice. And that's the example that is set for us. And it's doing so in love as Christians that will continue to be a salt in the world and light in the world. So we can continue to reflect that love that Christ had, but that was also not passive. He was willing and, and, and stood for injustices. And we had that example right before our eyes with, with watching how he lived. Amen, amen. As our closing question, and we'll do this a little bit more like rapid fire, um, in the panel of the elders, it was introduced, this concept, and I'm going to ask each of you to please respond. How can we as, as the church disciple ourselves out of racist, sexist, and imperialistic Christianity? I'll just say really quickly, and I am biased in this way, <laughs> but I, I do think studying the history of the oppressed and God's people making stories about African-American Christians more central. It, it amazes me when I talk to folks at seminary that they go th all throughout seminary and never learn about the black church and the resilience of the black church. When African-Americans have been 
um, historically the most churched people <laughs> um, consistently throughout American history. There's so much what we can learn about overcoming that instead of our theologians all being a bunch of old white guys, some of whom had very damaging ideas about African-Americans and people of color and women um, to really herald the theology of those who have been oppressed and to study that. Um, because they can show us a way of how to serve Christ in the midst of trouble and how to be discipled out of this very problematic ideas of, that have often risen with, with the current state of white evangelicalism. So studying the history of the oppressed. I would say um, absolutely. Um, the, the word of God and humility are key. Um, we need the word to provide that solid foundation on which to build our house. So I think one of the pillars of um, the um, imperialistic nature of, of, of our um, Christianity in the U.S. at times is pride. And when you are proud and when you're um, idolizing um, a nation, you don't critique that nation. Um, and the Bible provides a corrective to pride, to pride, which is to be humble, to have the mind and attitude of Christ, um, who very, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and also to associate with the humble. Um, and so I think, like a, a kind of a cursory read of that verse, you might think, oh well, you know, I'm volunteering at a homeless shelter, I'm associating with the humble, but I think it means more than that doesn't just mean humble in place, but also humble in heart. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think we have to steep ourselves in the word of God and really cultivate hearts of humility. I think being willing to listen um, and to not be so um, sort of conformed um, or have your mindset conformed to just one side of a perspective being willing to um, be able to step aside and think of things outside of your way of thinking, talking to people that may be on the opposite end, whether or not it's someone who is of a different race, um, and just being open to being able to be corrected in that way by, by hearing the other perspective. Um, yeah, I know we don't have a lot of time. I, I gave some thought to this, um, but I will just say one piece of the thought that I have is I kind of compare it to like, we're, we're battling right now COVID, right? That there's a virus that we have to battle. And uh, there are some steps we've, we've learned that we need to take in order to hopefully rid ourselves of this virus so we can have the life that we want to have. And so if we think of racism and sexism and imperialism, kind of like a COVID virus, like how, have, how can we think of how we're told to get rid of COVID and apply it to discipling ourselves up out of this stuff. Well, one is we're told to wear a mask, right? And the mask is representative of us preferring another above ourselves, right? And also protecting someone else from some kind of potential germ in us uh, because the mask is worn to protect the other person. And I just liken that in terms of a discipleship plan. We have to one, admit that there is a problem. Anytime you know, I'm walking around and I don't see masks. I kind of have this feeling like, oh, maybe like life feels normal. And then you go in the supermarket and everybody's like all masked up. The mask is a constant symbol and sign 
that there is a problem, that something is wrong. And we will never begin to fix these issues, which are really strongholds, until we admit that there is a problem and that perhaps the problem is in me. Because a lot of people wearing a mask, the reason why we have to wear them is because they are asymptomatic. And I think there are a lot of people walking around asymptomatic racist, asymptomatic sexist, asymptomatic a government, you know, in a United States imperialist, asymptomatic colonists. And so the thing is, you don't know you're sick until you get tested. And the way you get tested around all of these strongholds is when you have to show up. You get tested in how you respond to events like what happened with the uh, Capitol. You get tested when you respond when Black lives are gunned down. You get tested in how you show up on social media and are willing to have hard conversations with family, right? So we have to admit that the problem exists, but it also may be in me, right? It may be in me. And then secondly, I would say, you know, like social distancing is this other thing, sanitizing. There are some things we gotta get some distance from, right? If we're gonna disciple this stuff out of the culture and fabric of the church. And the Bible talks about come out from among them, right? There are some philosophies, some false teaching, some false doctrine, some kind of inherited genes, inherited germs that have been passed down generationally that we have to get ourselves some distance from. We have to decide, am I gonna still believe what I'm hearing in the media? Am I gonna still hold on to my preferences and my desire to be naturalistic more than walk in, in, in the calling of God that's on my life as a child of God? And how do I need to separate myself from things that are not going to help me reflect God so that I'm choosing Christ over every other part of myself? It doesn't mean we deny our color and our gender. It doesn't mean we don't love our country, but we have to love God above all. And sometimes a very hard line has to be drawn in the sand. That's sanctification. You know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That has to be a declarative statement. And then lastly, to go with my little metaphor, for COVID, we got to take a vaccine. Amen, somebody? And so what is the vaccine? It's like the vaccine has to be truth. Because all of this stuff around racism and sexism and all these things are strongholds, lies from the enemy, mental blocks, unbelieving belief systems. And the only way you defeat a lie is with the truth. So if we're going to disciple that stuff up out of the fabric of the church, see racism and sexism, that's in the culture, the fabric of the church, like somebody who cooked with curry. You know what I mean? It's like some ragu sauce type stain on the soul and heart of the church that we have to admit we got to get out and you only can do it with truth. So we have to have a high view of scripture, period. Uh, Dr. Ruth mentioned it. We, scripture has to be our foundation, right? We can't just know scripture. We can't just go to Bible study. Scripture has to be the truth. And we live in a world that wants truth to be arbitrary. We want you to have some truth. You can have your truth. There's no standard of truth, but the scripture, the word of God has to be the standard of truth. And we have to have a high view of it. If you do not have a high view of scripture, you could like the COVID vaccine, have exactly what you need to save you accessible to you, but because you don't use it, you don't take it, you don't appropriate it right in your life, then you will not be well. And so until we begin to trust God and take him at his word and decide that, you know, like if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to live in this world for God. I'm going to be sold out to God and I'm going to be committed 
to doing what the word says, even if the word, like the Bible talked about, the law condemns us, even if the word convicts us, even if the word tells us I'm wrong, even if the world shows me I'm a racist, I'm a sexist, and we can't pick and choose because there are many people, God bless you, who are fighting hard against racism and not fighting hard against sexism. And there are many people who are willing to fight hard against sexism and don't have a lick to say about racism. And so you don't get to pick and choose. God says his standard is holiness and every Christian has to bow down and submit to that standard if you dare call yourself a child of God. So we got, so for me, discipling this junk up out of us means we have to declare, we have to declare war against our own soul if it is coming against who God called us to be. And we have to submit to God through and through and let the word of God do what it does. Teach us who Christ was, what the work he did and what it accomplished, how that word and work transforms us and then walk in light of that transformation until we get our glorified body and go home. Amen. Amen. Let the word do what it does. Let the word do what it does. On that note, we will conclude today's panel. Um, to our panelists, I sincerely and graciously thank you for your contributions, for speaking God's truth and being both salt and light. To those tuning in, thank you for showing up and chatting with us. We hope to see you next time. As we close, Dr. Street, I'm going to ask if you can actually close this in prayer, and then we'll be out. Oh, Heavenly Father, how great thou art. Oh, you are a good and a merciful God. You are a good, good father. We thank you, Lord God, for life that we have hidden in you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who died a sinner's death, who died guilty, though he was innocent, because he died with the weight of all of our sin on his shoulder. I thank you, Lord God, for the confidence we can have um, that this life that we live, all the trauma and drama is temporary because you have promised us a reward to live with you in eternity where there's no evil, there's no more death, there's no more suffering, there's no more grief, there's no more racism, there's no more sexism, Lord God, but that we get to co-rule with you in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, Lord God. We look forward to that day. Would you help us, God, to be a church without spot or blemish? Would you help us to, to, to live on this side of heaven um, in a way that would honor and glorify you, that we would meet pressing needs, that, that we, Lord God, would not just want justice for ourselves, but we would fight for justice for others. Would we, would we plead the cause of the widow and the oppressed? Lord, would we put our hand to the plow and, and incarnate you in our communities, in our home, and in our world, Lord God? Would the word of God do a work on our heart? Would we be willing to be different? Would there be distinguishing characteristics of the Christian life so that when we do our good works, you, Father, would get glorified in heaven? I pray in the name of Jesus that if there's someone that's not saved, that does not know your voice, Lord God, that, that, that though they might want to fight for justice, Lord God, that they need you, Lord God, because the justice that is due them for being a sinner is eternal death, eternal separation from you. Lord God, I pray that people will get right with you first, get right with God and do it now. And I pray in the name of Jesus that Epiphany Fellowship will continue to be a light on a hill 
that we would continue to boldly evangelize and witness and declare the goodness of God, that we would go into the world and in our communities and love somebody. And that people would say they found out about Jesus from coming in contact with us. And we will be mindful to give you all the praise and all the glory. God bless these women who dedicated their time today. Would you refill us, Lord God, and use us for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thank you again, panelists, Epiphany family. We pray we see you soon. To those visiting, thanks for tuning in. And everyone have a wonderful, blessed Sunday. Take care. Peace. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder of Passive Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.